0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. Um, my guest is Jane Anthony. She's at Stanford, and we're going to be talking about uh, her research and her work. So, Jane, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Hi, Richard. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah. So, tell me, uh, you know, tell listeners a little bit about uh, what you do at Stanford and your research, and then we'll ask questions surrounding it.
1: Okay. So, I started my work. Uh, during my PhD in cancer biology, because I was fascinated uh, by the disease, how uh, over such a long period of time, um, compared to other diseases, there's been relatively slower progress in treating cancer. So one of the main reasons for this is, of course, um, because cancer is a more intrinsic disease, it arises from within the body. So whatever you've throw at it to kind of target it also has an effect on the normal healthy tissue. So I started focusing on metastasis, which is the process by which cancer, which begins in a primary organ in the body that kind of spreads to other parts. So that's actually one of the bottlenecks in treating cancer, because as long as the cancer is localized, you can still remove it surgically and have therapies that can shrink it. But once it disseminates to other organs, then treatment becomes more and more difficult. And from metastasis, the process is also closely linked to the property of cancer stem cells because even if most therapies are effective at targeting more than 99% of all the cancer in the body, if you leave behind a small percentage of cells that can regrow or reinitiate the tumor, that's when you have relapse. So that's quite dangerous. So my research focuses on both aspects, metastasis as well as cancer stem cells.
0: Yeah, are there any other tissues in the body that act like a cancer tissue that will will try to migrate and move to other areas of the body? I mean, what's the closest analog in our tissue?
1: Mm-hmm. I guess the closest analog would be at the time of conception because um, When we are all formed, we come from one single cell, and this cell divides into many cells. But apart from the division, which gives rise to the embryo and later the baby, these cells also migrate to take up certain uh, positions within the body. So there is a property called um, epithelial to mesenchymal transition. So cells that are usually very polarized and epithelial-like, they undergo a property of EMT or epithelial to mesenchymal transition they get they take up migratory properties so that's how the patterning of the body itself takes place when the embryo is being formed so the cells migrate to distant locations and you know you get uh, different organs and different anatomy coming up so also, the reverse process occurs because when the cells reach their destined location, they undergo the process of MET, which is mesenchymal to epithelial transition. So they revert back and then they again uh, proliferate and form new tissue at the new location. Um, and this, of course, this process is under very complex biological gradients because you know you have secretion of growth factors that either promote or inhibit so that the correct um phenotype is achieved now in a grown uh, person migration is not a very common incident not to the extent it happens in a developing embryo but of course if you have uh, a wound for example that happens on your skin there is a certain amount of migration that happens on the cells on either side of the wound so they migrate to help you close the wound so that is a common example Um, And also, for example, the liver, for example, although it does not migrate, it contains a highly uh, regenerative potential. So every time there's a partial liver damage, the liver can in theory regrow, which is why of course liver transplants, you don't need to transplant the whole organ. You just put a small part of it and then it's capable of regrowing. So we do, as adults, we do retain some of the innate properties in some tissues, but of course, Uh, Not all tissues have this ability. For example, the heart does not contain any property for regeneration. So as cells get differentiated as they grow up, we lose the ability um, to sustain this. So the interesting thing in cancer is that this property is reinitiated so that they are capable of forming tumors again.
0: Have you figured out how cancer first starts? Like uh, I imagine... A lab experiment where you have some cancer cells and maybe you take one and move it you know somewhere further away in the dish and see what it does and see if it starts growing in a new
1: matrix um, yeah teachers of that so i think the most common forms of uh, if we so growing something in the lab in a dish is very different from actually what happens in the body so our body has a lot of biological checks to prevent cancer. So most of the times you need the DNA, which is inside the cell, to be damaged um, for cancer to occur because you need to have the cells overcome uh, anti-proliferative signals. Because all cells in a grown human being, they have a check. If they are in contact with another cell, they don't usually tend to proliferate out of control. Um, so Changes have to be made in the very genes of the cell, so that a lot of these restrictions are overcome. There are some things called tumor suppressors within the cell. So if a cell tries to grow very quickly, these tumor suppressors, like p53 or other tumor suppressors, they will usually just cause the cell to die. So several of these checks have to be overcome by the cancer, uh, by a precancerous cell, in order to become cancerous. And all that is, again, linked to epigenetic or genetic changes within the DNA itself. Now, the triggers for changes in the DNA can be many. I mean, just the process of cell division as we grow older can cause errors because each time the DNA has to be copied before the cell divides. So if there's an error in the copying of the DNA, you can have. Um, potential cancerous mutations however for sufficient amount of cancerous mutations to occur within the same cell uh, it's a game of numbers because unless you can cause all the required mutations to happen within the same cell the cell is not going to turn cancerous there are many triggers of course Uh, there are a lot of environmental triggers like uv radiation smoking inflammation Uh, they are all linked so they will uh, increase the number of DNA mutations you get but whether those mutations are cancerous and whether they all occur in the same cell again comes back to a numbers game and of course when we manipulate cells outside the body whether we grow them in cell culture or whether we grow them in animal models there's like a list of standardized tests that we can use to check how tumorigenic or how cancerous the cell is and yeah they tend to be quite migratory and invasive so that is one of the things we can test for so when we have new drugs we can check whether these things will respond to them
0: well what is uh, what starts a cancer is it a stem cell that's created first or is it a regular cell that then creates stem cells and then what starts a metastasis uh, a stem cell or like a daughter cell of of cancer
1: Mm, that's a very interesting question Um, so there are a lot of um theories in the field because uh, a lot of scientists from all around the world they hold different opinions um the thing is it's impossible to study this particular system in the human retrospectively because usually when this patient comes they already present with the disease the most acceptable consensus is um It is a cell that is not fully differentiated, so it still has stem cell-like properties. So normal stem cells in the body, they reside in your blood, in different tissues like the mammary gland, or in the lining of your intestines, because these tissues, they need to be replaced on a day-to-day basis. So you have your blood that gets replenished, your skin, your gut. So... You have stem cells that can proliferate and give rise to daughter cells, but these stem cells also have the property of self-renewal. So when a stem cell divides, it forms another copy of itself, which is a stem cell, and a differentiated daughter cell. Now, the differentiated daughter cell can have a function, which is to form a skin or the lining of the gut or a new blood cell. But the daughter cell, which is differentiated, cannot further divide. So there is a hierarchy. So the stem cell sits at the top of the hierarchy. It can give rise to different types of blood cells, different types of skin cells, different types of gut cells. So the most common consensus is a mutation in the stem cell would actually be inherited by all the daughter cells that come out. And therefore, eventually, this stem cell, along with all its daughter cells, gives rise to a primary cancer. And the mutations actually accumulate over time because once a cell starts dividing out of control, there are more and more divisions happening than normal because of the stem cell. And as a, if you recall, I told you with each subsequent division, there's a chance for more error in DNA replication. So there's an accumulation of other mutations. And eventually some of these mutations will facilitate the dissemination of the cancer or metastasis. So the tissues, they lose the property of anti-proliferation or we call it apoptosis because if you take a normal cell in the body and it dissociates from where it is, it will usually just die because it cannot survive anchorage independent growth. But the cancer cells, they acquire enough mutations so that they can overcome anchorage independent growth and they are able to disseminate to different parts of the body we call them uh, pre-metastatic niches. For example, a breast cancer, which is metastasizing, will go to the lymph nodes, it can go to lungs, it can even go to bone. So those are the different tissues it would go to. And sometimes, very rarely, even the brain. So once they reach their metastatic niches, these cells have additional mutations than even probably the cancer stem cell that initiated them. So Now, when they proliferate and form a mass at the new site, they are more aggressive to treatment. So they're more resistant because they have more mutations, which probably a drug, if you throw at it, it's able to resist. So that is why it becomes increasingly difficult to treat metastasis because they're on several vital organs and they are more resistant.
0: Well, when you talk about treatment, uh, you mean essentially chemotherapy and radiation, or are there other treatments that uh, are there in addition? And how do you think, or how how have scientists observed that chemo and radiation and perhaps other treatments affect uh, cancer? Does it affect the stem cells? Does it affect the daughter cells? You know, Can you go into that for a bit?
1: Okay, um, so yeah, most likely in most came, uh, cases when a patient presents, um, if the tumor is fairly localized, as in it's in the primary site, they would usually do a debulking or a surgery to remove most of the mass. Um, if it's a solid tumor, and then they would add chemo and radiation. So chemotherapy, radiation, how they actually work is chemo targets all rapidly dividing cells. So it cannot target a stem cell because a stem cell actually has the property of quiescence. So it can go quiet for a very long time without dividing. And once the chemo has been withdrawn, it can start proliferating again. It can cause more daughters to proliferate. So that is the danger of chemotherapy. It can very rarely completely um, stop the tumor from coming back. But it's a good first line of treatment because you're able to completely shut down most of the bulk of the tumor. Uh, So chemo essentially targets fast dividing cells, which is why the side effect of chemotherapy is hair loss and nausea, because your hair, of course, is proliferating every day. You know, your hair is growing. So all those cells get damaged and the hair falls off and you get nausea because the lining of your gut also has a lot of fast proliferating cells because the lining of your gut is replaced every day. So the chemo also affects that. Now the chemo is not a specific drug in the sense if your cancer is let's say driven by mutations A, B and C or whether it is driven by mutations C, D or E, it doesn't know the difference As long as it's proliferating rapidly, it will try to destroy it by destabilizing certain biochemical and biophysical aspects of the cell that rely on proliferation. Uh, Radiation, on the other hand, it causes damages uh, to DNA breaks um, in the cells, in the cancer tissue. So radiation therapy is usually localized. Uh, They don't infuse your whole body with it. They would just try to localize it to... For example, in breast cancer, if they are removing the primary tissue while the chest wall is still open, they will try to use radiation onto the tissue um, surrounding where the cancer was to remove any residual cells. So now when there's excessive DNA breakage in your cancer cells, they will still die because that amount of DNA damage no cell can cope with. It's like destroying all the imprint within it. Uh, So that's how those two particular... Therapies work. It's very hard to um, give radiation to something that has metastasized because it's probably all over the body and it's very hard to localize the radiation. And radiation, of course, will have an effect on normal cells as well. So that usually does not happen. Uh, Chemotherapy gets increasingly less effective with each round of treatment because if you give chemotherapy for round one and round two, your cancer has come back then most likely um, it has already become partially resistant to the chemotherapy because these cells are resistant in the first round, which is why they are able to regrow in the second round. So that is the drawback of chemo and radiation. They are non-specific therapies that kind of kill the bulk of the tumor without really focusing on the true drivers of tumor initiation. However, that being said, if the cancer is sufficiently localized and it's early enough you know it hasn't metastasized too much or um, chemotherapy can be affected so for some pa- patients um, they are able to completely destroy whatever residual cancer is they're using chemotherapy and these patients are successfully in remission for a very long time so interestingly now the field is actually shifting towards targeted therapies and immuno-oncology so that seems to be the latest trend
0: well, is the field trying to address uh, attacking the cancer stem cells now or what's the latest theory on how they're going to uh, fight
1: um, Yeah, so I, I would say that the new era of targeting cancer, um, so the targeted therapies that I was mentioning, so they focus on a concept called patient stratification and personalized medicine. So it comes from the knowledge that not all the cancers are identical because, like I said, some cancers are driven by mutations A, B, and C. Other cancers can be driven by mutations P, Q, R. So you have different genes that actually cause the cancer to be driven. So in targeted therapies, for example, you can have drugs like Herceptin, which target a particular protein called HER2, which is only expressed, let's say, in a subset of breast cancer, and not so you wouldn't give this particular drug to all patients with breast cancer you would first screen the patients and see who would respond to this drug best and who have mutations that would make them susceptible to this drug so that's the point of targeted therapy so of course um you get less toxicity because most of the cancer would be attacked and also with the greater efficacy of targeted therapy you can also kind of target the cancer stem cells and shrink the pool of cancer stem cells to a small enough number that they cannot grow back uh the other kind of therapies that the field is venturing into is immuno-oncology uh so immuno-oncology how that really works is um you so one of the main barriers to cancer in your body is also through your immune system when they detect anything um, that is out of place, whether it's a foreign infection or a local inflammation, they usually can attack and clear your body. Um, and the thing is, it's not even an external drug. It's your own body that kind of has the immune response. However, because the cancer is really part of your own body, they can kind of mask themselves and escape your own immune system and therefore become a cancer. So now uh, scientists have found out ways to energize the immune system so to activate it even further so that they do have a significant effect on cancer patients. However, these treatments are very, very personalized. So you cannot have one drug which you give to patients. So for each of these patients, you sometimes have to take out their immune cells from their body, you grow the immune cells outside, you prime them and you put their own immune cells back into the body. So that is one way. Uh, So, of course, you can imagine it's not a scalable uh, treatment option. It's something that you have to do for every single patient. So um, work is being done at this point to kind of move forward with that. They have seen some amazing results. They have seen people with metastatic cancer go into remission with immunotherapy. Um, But, yeah, it's something where the field is definitely moving towards because they're able to see such amazing results. But it doesn't, of course, so work the, for everybody.
0: Right. Well, what, what's the focus of your research specifically? What What's your premise on how you can target uh, cancer and get rid of it?
1: Um, so I, like I said, I work on metastasis and um, cancer stem cells. So I primarily work with seeing how the frequency of cancer stem cells, they change um, with every subsequent drug treatment. So we kind of see if the stem cell, rather than the bulk of the tumor reducing or coming back, we kind of have a software through which we can analyze the phenotypic results we get. So it's called a limiting dilution assay, and it lets us calculate the stem cell frequency so we can see if our pool of stem cells actually is reducing when we target specific drivers of these stem cells. And we're also looking to see how these stem cells are evolving with each drug treatment because obviously they get more resistant if they are surviving one drug treatment and remaining, right? So we look at the genetic imprint of these cancer stem cells to see how they are all So it's kind of like playing chess with the cancer to see, okay, if we put this drug, you can kill 99% and this 1% has evolved or has certain evolutions that let it survive. So we know that drug two has to be something a bit different and is targeting something else, and then drug three and then drug four. So we're trying to see how the clonal evolution also happens in the stem cell space.
0: Well what what to you were the drivers of the stem cells at each point? What have you observed after no you know, before any treatment, after treatment one, two, three, four, you know, what are you seeing out there that uh drives them at different stages?
1: So again, it would depend on the type of cancer, it would depend on the subtype of cancer. So uh, what we see is that there are several factors that contribute um, to um, stem cell like cancer stem cells. Uh, So there are certain genes like BMI1, usd 16 and TGF-beta signaling that all get rewired in the cancer cell state. During metastasis, again, uh, you have different players coming up, like um, there's a new therapeutic target called Axel, which has been shown to have efficacy in treating metastatic um, cancers. So you have different targets that we do come up with and we publish on. To see, of course, the more newer ones which uh, we haven't published, I can't disclose at this point.
0: Well, are you focused on uh, a certain type of cancer? Let's say just breast cancer, or are you looking at all of them? Or you know, like, what's the path um, of your research right now? And you know, what can you say that you have discovered? Any specifics?
1: Okay, uh, so for ovarian, so I. Uh, in ovarian cancer, I was focused on metastasis because in ovarian, there's very few patients who actually come at the primary stage because it's a, it's a very asymptomatic disease. So over 95% of patients who are diagnosed with ovarian, um, although it's getting a bit better enough, maybe 80% of patients who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer already present uh, when the disease has uh, disseminated and has metastasized. So for ovarian, I focused on metastatic disease, and we discovered that there was um, a driver, um, a receptor tyrosine kinase called Axel, and uh, that was actually overamplified in metastatic lesions, how it was driving metastasis, invasion, and a more aggressive phenotype and so what we saw was that we were able to target Axel with a drug called BGB342 which was um, uh, done in collaboration with uh, Bergen Bio in Norway and that is currently in phase two clinical trials right now Um, so that was one aspect of my work another aspect that we are working on right now is We have cancer stem cells and breast cancer, um, which show deregulated uh, TGF beta signaling. So, we actually have a patent on that to try and develop a therapeutic that's going to target that particular axis. And that's one of the works that I'm currently involved in. Um, We're also working a little bit on the neural stem cells. So, that would be in the brain, but that's a little too early on to say what's going to happen in that project, yeah.
0: All right. Well, what does it mean when you target a cancer stem cell? What are you trying to do specifically in a, in a given situation? It could even be hypothetical, but what's what's an example of what you would do to, quote unquote, target a cancer stem cell, and what do you hope the effect would be?
1: So, ideally, the tumor will not grow at all once you target the cancer stem cells. Um, so, the output, so we usually have different models in the lab where you can see tumor growth. So even with as little, so you can actually isolate cancer stem cells out of the bulk. So when you get a patient sample and you can sort the cells individually, we use something called a fax machine, which is fluorescent-assisted cell sorting, and you can use specific markers to pull out your cancer stem cells. Um, Even if you put as little as 10 to 50 cancer stem cells, it can cause an entire tumor with millions of cells to grow out. However, if you target these cells, specifically these 10 to 20, the rest of the tumor, even if you don't do anything, it will die because it cannot proliferate anymore. So ideally, it's to see the effect on growth of the tumor. And that, of course, is linked to eventual dissemination and metastasis. So it's really striking the cancer at the source of the origin of the cancer, what is able to feed the cancer. Yeah.
0: Right, but what does the strike look like? Like, what, we, what do you do to the uh, the stem cells to cause them to die? Or to stop divide or to stop uh, dividing? Can you force them to differentiate so they become daughter cells themselves and they don't have yes, their stem cell-like actually, properties? Or?
1: Yes, actually, that is the strategy we're implying. We're trying to see, uh, we actually know some of the molecules. So like I said, the TGF-beta family is involved. And one of the family members of the TGF beta family, they cause the stem cells to avoid differentiation, but stay in the stem cell-like state. So we try to introduce antagonists that will cause it to differentiate instead. That is absolutely right. That is the strategy we're trying. There's also other strategies, which you can use small molecule inhibitors. Um, Yeah, so we obviously will try four to five different strategies. Before we see which one is most efficacious, and then go ahead with that.
0: Yeah, I've, I've heard that um, it's possible in any to metabolically uh, influence a cancer. You know, by uh, I don't know, by change of diet, uh, You know, reducing certain certain uh, feedstocks for the cancer. You know, their food sources that they use to grow and proliferate. Is there any um, metabolism-based therapies that you're looking into, or do you think that they're not going to be uh, helpful?
1: We don't specifically work, uh, our focus is not on metabolism based therapies, Um, although that being said, there are several groups that work with, uh, so the the metabolism of a cancer cell is very different from the metabolism of a normal cell. So we can actually see that the pathways that the cancer cells, because they are growing so rapidly and out of control, they consume energy in a much more rapid manner and through a different pathway. So most cells, they utilize the glycolysis pathway in a certain way to get energy out of nutrients that they are presented with. Cancer of course has completely deregulated this pathway and it generates a lot of um, uh, quick turnover of whatever you consume. So while I think medically we cannot really ascertain to say this diet is better than the other most doctors would recommend that um you have healthy food as is good for any kind of well-being where you have uh, sufficient nutrients um less processed food less red meat less alcohol um also possibly less sugar I think um, because when the overall health of the body is also very good um because of the kind of food composition that you're in, your immune system is better, they can also help target the cancer better when they are you know rejuvenated, and also the inflammation level in your body can go down because um for alcohol that you drink or the red meat that you drink, your body will produce a certain amount of reactive oxygen species, and inflammation which is fine in a normal person, but in the context of cancer, if there's excessive inflammation, also from um, obesity around the waistline, that also causes a certain kind of inflammation. All that will drive the cancer. So in the context of all that, a healthy diet will holistically help. Also in terms of taking all the cancer medication, it makes you stronger to face that. Yes, And metabolically, while you can uh they they have there are people who show there's something called the Warburg effect, which is what the cancer uses to really get a lot of glucose so people have shown that partial reduction in glucose amounts or carbohydrate amounts can potentially starve the cancer uh but there has to my knowledge, I don't think there has been any long term study in patients to visualize this okay
0: well very good um any other or any observations you've had through your research particularly that really surprised you that were unexpected that you want to talk about?
1: Mm, Yeah, I guess for me, the the concept of stem cells is really fascinating because you can put as little as, you know, a few cells, like between one and 10 cells in a mouse model. Um, And that gives rise to an entire tumor that usually has about 20 million cells so it really really is surprising from the order of magnitude one to ten you get something like 20 million cells so you really know that the cancer is coming out of that one to ten cells that have that ability to keep self-renewing and causing proliferation so i definitely think targeting the cancer stem cell niche has um, a very um, sustained way of curing cancer. The only drawback with targeting the stem cells is uh, you also have normal stem cells in a human um, body, right? Like you have stem cells in your gut, your skin, your blood, your bone marrow has so many normal stem cells. So when you try to target stem cells in the cancer, you're most likely going to hit other stem cells as well, which are really crucial for body functioning. So I think in blood cancers, they have a slightly um, um, interesting way of doing this. They usually take out the bone marrow of the patient from uninfected sites and they keep it. And then they flush out just about everything else from the patient. And then they put back the bone marrow that they've taken outside, which does not have cancer hopefully. And this can kind of give rise to the new blood system in the patient without the cancer. But of course, that's a liquid uh, tumor in a sense. It's liquid and it's possible to do this. Whereas with solid tumors, it's much more challenging because it's hard to remove organs and to carry out treatment and to put them back in. But I guess we are kind of going into the right space because um, there was interesting, I was talking, um, I was reading up on some of the latest advancements and there's a biotechnology company called Meris uh, which I think is headquartered in Europe. And what they do is they use immuno-oncology to target cancer stem cells. So it's using your body's own immune cells to kind of target cancer stem cells, but they do it so that it does not target normal cancer, uh, normal stem cells. So it identifies... Two different components of the cancer, the proliferating cells as well as the cancer stem cells and only when the immune cell knows that it's in the right niche it's able to kind of attack so it would be interesting to see where that trial goes. I think they are kind of currently in phase one, if I'm not wrong
0: yeah, I've got one more question about metastases um you know you said that if a, a cancer is caught early enough and it hasn't metastasized and it's very localized that it's it seems to be seems to be easier to treat it and to get rid of yes. it. Um, so that seems to say that a cancer will start locally. It'll grow to a certain size and then it will metastasize. Do you know, Do have you figured out what signal occurs that tells a cancer stem cells? Okay. We've grown enough in this area. It's time to like move on and spread and how metastases happen. You know, does a, a few of the stem cells somehow break off and then travel through the body. Like do you, you know, what is the mechanism of metastasis and how is it signaled? Any insights there?
1: So that's actually a very interesting branch of what we do as well. So typically when a tumor grows um, to a large size at the primary site, um, the blood vessels are unable to feed it with oxygen and food. So there's a condition of hypoxia, which means there's less oxygen and less food available for the tumor. So that is an intrinsic signal to the cancer that it's not getting nutrition at that spot. So that's when it tries also, I think, to move away. Um, So then what happens is some of the cells, like I said, I remember I said something about the process of epithelial to mesenchymal transition. So they undergo molecular changes that enable them to disseminate um, away due to the trigger of hypoxia due to lack of. Nutrition, and when they reach other organs, which are usually beds, which are you know, like for example, the lungs, they contain a very rich source of oxygen for these tumors, or different parts like the bone marrow, which you know are secreting a lot of growth factors because the blood stem cells have to obviously proliferate. So when they reach new niches, then they undergo reverse process of MET, which is mesenchymal-epithelial transition. So the process of EMT and stem cell, like there's a dynamic interplay where the cell, the stem cell, reprograms itself partially but not fully. It does not become a full mesenchymal cell, it becomes partial, moves to a distant site, and then reprograms itself back into a stem cell and again gives rise to a colony. So, the dangerous thing about the stem cell and the EMT space is that there's a dynamic switching back and forth in a transition, which we call it plasticity. So depending on this plasticity, they're able to move further and further away from the primary site. So of course, for metastasis to happen, even 1% of cells or lesser that start out from the primary is enough to cause the metastasis. So there are a lot of cells that undergo the process and fail, but given enough cells attempt to undergo the process of metastasis, eventually you will have colonization at a different site.
0: Well, um, how literally would uh, a stem cell metastasize and migrate? Does it hitch a ride on a blood vessel? Does it put itself into the bloodstream and it migrates and ends up in some capillary and then, I mean, diffuses out of the capillary? Or how do you think it literally migrates and hitches a
1: ride? Mm, I think different cancers um, use different... Ways for metastasis. So, um, most of the cancers that metastasize, they will either use the blood vessels or the lymphatic system. So, they are both, again, as you mentioned, blood vessels or capillaries or tubes through which they are able to get by because they are eventually connected to other organs. And uh, some of them, they also directly um, introversate. Um, for example, from the blood they are able uh, from the breast cancer they are able to directly go um into surrounding lymph nodes and from there form local metastasis before they go further uh, in terms of ovarian cancer, for example, from the because the peritoneal cavity or your abdominal cavity is it's actually a big hollow space, the process of metastasis does not actually involve lymph or blood vessels. The cancer just sheds into the peritoneal fluid, and then it starts embedding onto things like your intestines, your liver. So gut-borne uh, cancers, they just kind of spread very directly. They don't sometimes even require blood or lymph. So it depends, again, on the type of cancer.
0: And I would think if you had, um, you know, let's say ovarian cancer and it spread to other organs, the cells would be mm-hmm. in a much more alien environment where all the cells around them are doing one job, they're doing another. So I would okay. think that the body would be, it would be a clearer signal to the body to get rid of those metastases than the original tumor. But are you saying it's not that? Is it the opposite? Is there any benefit um or detriment to the cancer by being in different surrounding tissue, or does that not seem to uh to cause um, a, so, uh, a stronger so the, immune ser- response
1: um so the immune cells actually they can't detect the location of your as in they don't actually know that oh this is in the wrong location, so how the immune system works is it differentiates self from non self in a sense um. All the immune cells that are formed, they go through a maturation process in the thymus of your body. And any immune cell that can detect self-antigens that is produced by the own body is rejected. That's why, uh, so that your immune cells don't attack your own body cells and they can only detect foreign antigens. So even if you have, let's say, um, an ovarian tissue, let's say you implant it somewhere. Um, in your upper arm, in theory, if it is your own tissue, you may have a little bit of inflammation and swelling, but your immune system will not be able to clear it. But if you put somebody else's organ into your body, then you can have rejection happening quite easily. So the immune system unfortunately cannot, it does not have spatial awareness of the tissue per se. Um, But that being said, if the cancer starts mutating, over time, and then it starts expressing different proteins on its surface, which are different from the profile that the immune system is used to. For example, if you have, let's say, mutations in proteins A, B, C, and let's say usually the proteins that are expressed are one copy of A, B, and C on a normal tissue. And in your cancer, all this is upregulated to, let's say, 100 copies of A, B, and C. Then the tumor will know that the profile has changed. That is when it can actually attack. And usually in a metastasis, the profile has changed. But the metastasis also upregulates something um, called immune suppressors. So there's a pathway called the pd one pathway, which the part, uh uh, cancer cells make use of. So these pathways actually actively suppress the immune cells, which can attack the cancer otherwise. So that's again hmm. something that these okay. metastasis are capable of doing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Very very interesting. Well, I, I appreciate all your patience. I've asked you a lot of questions. Uh, what's the best way? It's my for pleasure. To find out. Yeah. Well, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research, or maybe contact the lab with questions, or collaboration ideas
1: um, yes yeah, so I work at the stencil Institute so um, I could give you my email ID at um, after the call and I'm happy for you to use that with the podcast um, so I think a yeah, good people, website
0: for people to go to so to see the labs work
1: yes yeah, so we do have a, a website for the lab as well it's on Stanford um, it's on the Stanford site. So I could send you the link to okay. that as well. Yeah, That would
0: be great. All right. So people can go to stanford.edu and then they can put in the yeah. name of your lab and find you that way.
1: Yeah. Uh, they can just put in my name and they will be able to find me that way. Yes. Okay.
0: Well, Jane, thank yeah. you so much for coming and for your patience and for your knowledge. I really appreciate
1: it. It's great talking to you. I look forward to seeing the copy of the podcast.
0: Very good. You have been listening to Almost Here,